0: When was the last time you felt bored? Well, actually, Pastor, it's about this time every Sunday. <laughs> the reality is we don't have a whole lot of opportunities to be bored, do we? I mean, we have TV, which has 24-hour news channel, 24-hour sports channels, 24-hour classic movie channels. We have talk radio We have the greatest hits of the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. We have the newspaper. We have the crossword. We have fiction novels. We have computers and the Internet and smartphones and tablets. We have Xbox and PlayStation. We have gossip over the phone. We have our workshops out in the backyard. We have Trivia Crack and and all these other things. And I could list more, right? There's not a lot of boredom that we have these days. Ismail Darrow is a young journalist who writes on web and technology for nationalpost.com. He asked this question in an article this week. When was the last time you felt bored? Not just momentarily unoccupied, but utterly mind-numbingly bored. He writes about an experiment at the University of Central Lancashire in England. And the participants were asked to do boring things like read phone books. They were supposed to read phone books, and then after they were done, they were given a project. And their project was to take two styrofoam cups and, and do something interesting. And what they found was the more bored the people were, the more creative they were in what they did with those styrofoam cups. And Dara writes this. What if Isaac Newton, rather than daydreaming under that tree, had instead been fiddling with his iPhone? It's easy to imagine him angrily tweeting about the bump on his head from a falling apple rather than contemplating the reason it dropped from its branch. In other words, the idea is that maybe all of our constant swiping and messaging is is actually hindering us, preventing us from productive thinking. Now, before we start thinking this is just a young person's problem... It's not. It has been said that over the last 10 years, consistently, the age group that grows the most in Facebook usage is the 55 and older. So it may not just be a young person thing. And it may not even be a technology thing. One of the most lucrative marketing niches in our country is the leisure and entertainment for senior adults. So we have a picture here of maybe not youth, maybe not old age, maybe not technology, but a picture of maybe it's the young folks with their social media and their technology hanging out at the late night coffee joint talking about the things they hope things will be. Or it could be the older generation with their travel and their hobbies hanging out at the early morning coffee joint talking about the way things used to be either way we find ourselves kind of in the same scenario and the question is this are we really thinking are we really thinking or are we overloading with downloading or are we making too much of the good old days and wasting the good now days and why does it matter why does it matter how we think what impact does it have on anything in our lives Remember the question I asked a moment ago, when was the last time you felt bored? Let me ask it a different way. Flip it around a little bit. When was the last time you felt hope? When was the last time you really felt hope in the middle of your darkest day? Peter is writing a letter here to Christians who had been suffering. He's writing a letter to Christians who were discouraged and down. And he's wanting to help them think. He's wanting to encourage them, and and he's going to encourage them by helping them think in such a way that they will actually feel hope. So what's the key that he gives them for this hope-filling thinking? This this idea of thinking in such a way that we we get hope, real hope, deep hope, lasting hope. What's the key? Well, the key he gives them is worship. Worship. We looked last week at at Peter's worship of God. His encouragement to suffering, struggling Christians is worship. And the first part of his worship goes like this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is astounded. He cannot get over the fact. That God invaded his spiritually dead soul, caused him to be born again, and gave him life. Peter's worshiping because he knows that he once was lost, but now he's found. He once was blind, but now he sees. He once was dead, but now he's alive. That's the first part of his worship. Now he's going to tell us about the second part of his worship. Look with me at 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 4. He writes, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What does it mean to inherit something? Well, it means to come into the possession of something. A person who has truly been born again comes into the possession of something. A person who's truly been born again has an inheritance. And what is that inheritance? Well, our inheritance is salvation. Our inheritance is the, the freedom we have from having the shackles of sin broken and taken away. Our salvation is our inheritance. I am saved. I am being saved. One day I will completely and ultimately and gloriously be saved. A Christian's inheritance is their salvation. A Christian does not inherit a perfect romantic marriage. A Christian does not inherit brilliant, athletic, always pleasant and using good manners children. A Christian does not inherit a a high paying job with lots of vacation days. A Christian does not inherit a government that, that meets every single one of their needs. A Christian does not inherit a church that meets every single one of their needs. A Christian's inheritance is their salvation. And where does that salvation come from? John Piper writes, fathers leave an inheritance to their children, not vice versa. God is the giver here. All the way through this passage, he is the fountain. God is the one overflowing. We are receivers at every point. Mercy, new birth, resurrection, inheritance. So God is the giver of these things. He's the giver of new life. He's the giver of our inheritance. But it's not just that he's the giver. In a sense, he is actually the inheritance. He's what we actually get. Just a few pages over in this same letter, Peter writes these words. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Salvation in Jesus Christ doesn't just mean that we're made right with God. It means that we actually are brought to God. We we get God. When my children were born, the nurse did not walk across the room and and put a birth certificate into my wife's hands and say, look, I just wanted you to know, just give you proof that you just had a baby. (laughs) No, the nurse would do what? She would come and put the baby in my wife's hands. It wasn't just proof that something that happened, it wasn't proof of the real thing. it was the real thing. Our inheritance, our salvation, is not just proof of something. it is the real thing. It is life and hope and joy and peace. Peter is encouraging people who were suffering, people who were discouraged, people who were exhausted. That never happens to any of us, does it? So what's his encouragement? For the moments of life where we are suffering, for the moments of life that we're discouraged, for the moments of life that we're mentally and physically and spiritually exhausted, what hope does Peter offer? He offers salvation. He offers the inheritance of our salvation. That is the hope that he holds out. And he doesn't just say, hey, you know, eventually, you know, one day when you die, you know, after you die, you'll, you'll go to heaven. So, I mean, you got that going for you. It's not what he says. He doesn't just use language like somebody's reading the last will and testament, like a, a lawyer just reading some, some legal language. He's saying to them, look, this is great news. Yes, we have an inheritance. Yes, we have something to hang on to. And he uses words like this, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade, reserved in heaven. He uses big, great words to describe our inheritance, not just something on the side. So what do those words mean? Well, let's just think about them for a second. First, he says that our inheritance is imperishable. The salvation of a Christian, a Christian's inheritance cannot perish, it cannot decay. We had a storage unit once and and we had a bunch of cardboard boxes in there full of all kinds of stuff, and, and one of those boxes somehow got some water damage in that unit one time. And by the time we found it, you know, months later or whenever it was, that the bottom of that cardboard box was just nothing but, you know, shriveled up, shredded mush. A Christian's salvation, a Christian's inheritance will never turn into shriveled up mush. Can't happen. The Christian's inheritance will never have water damage. It will never have fire damage. The data file for a Christian's salvation will never be corrupt. It will never be accidentally deleted. You see, the difference in our inheritance as believers is completely different than any inheritance that we would ever get on this earth. Because every inheritance that we would have on this earth can perish and can decay. But not so our salvation. My dad may decide to leave me all 342 of his Nike Clemson golf shirts. I don't know. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. My mom says 342. It might be four. I don't know. But if I die this afternoon, I won't get the shirts. It won't happen. They'll they'll disappear from my scope of inheritance. That can never happen with my salvation. There is absolutely no way my inheritance in Jesus Christ can perish, decay, or disappear. It will not happen. It is imperishable. Peter says it's also undefiled. When I say the words Holocaust, Columbine, 9-11, there are immediate words that pop into our minds, right? Those words bring images of evil and horror and terror and sin and tragedy. Those words will never touch my salvation. Those words will never touch a Christian's inheritance. The inheritance of a believer cannot be defiled in any way by the worst schemes of the enemy and his demons. Nothing can stain a believer's inheritance. My sisters and I, May we can fight and argue and sue each other over whatever our parents may decide to leave us. We can stain the honor of their name with our sin. But that can never happen to a Christian's inheritance. There is absolutely nothing that can stain or defile the inheritance of a person who's been born again. Nothing can stain the truth and honor of salvation in Jesus Christ. Nothing our inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and Peter says it also will not fade away nine years ago we had a 50th wedding anniversary for my parents had a little party and the room was full of these huge ferns the whole room was decorated with these big ferns and my mom and my three sisters and I we each took two ferns home that day and probably within two months all of those ferns were dead except for two, and the two that were still alive were at my house, and they were still alive because of the care of my wife, not from my care at all. I don't have a green thumb, so for all those ferns may still be at my house. I don't know, but, but I do know those other ferns, they wilted, they faded, and they died. That can never happen to the inheritance of a Christian. It cannot wilt It cannot fade. It cannot die. The inheritance of a Christian is a bottomless account of love and joy and peace forever and ever and ever. Nothing can take away from it. This imperishable, this undefiled inheritance, this inheritance that cannot fade away. Where is it? Where is this inheritance? Look back at verse 4. It is reserved in heaven for you. One of the great things and the unique things about the Masters Golf Tournament just down the road in Augusta, Georgia, is the natural levels of courtesy and respect and honor that exist with just about everything that happens with the tournament. Jeff Lopez is one of my best buddies from college and a big Masters fan. Imagine if, if me and Lopez are going to the Masters one day. And Lopez gets there first. He's the first one in the gate that morning. And he takes two chairs, and and he goes to the 18th green, and he puts them in the prime spot. I mean, the best place to see all the action. And then he leaves those chairs right there that morning. And he comes back over to the gate after I get there. And then for the next five hours, we walk around watching the golfers compete and eating, you know, six or, or 16 pimento cheese sandwiches or egg salad sandwiches. You know, walking around for five hours enjoying golf, and then after those five hours, we go back over to the 18th green. You know what? Our chairs are still going to be there. And nobody's going to be sitting in them. And nobody would have bothered them. There's not too many major sporting events that can boast that kind of respect and courtesy from the patrons that attend. Reserve seats at the Masters Golf Tournament. Do not even remotely compare to a reservation in the home of the master and the owner of the universe. There is no comparison. The reality is, is the inheritance of a Christian is in heaven, not on a golf course. The inheritance of a Christian is reserved in a place that cannot be touched. There's absolutely nothing that can bother our inheritance. If you are born again, your inheritance is in the safest place in the universe. I think sometimes we forget the power and the authority of what it means to be in Christ. All our other inheritances may have something that go wrong with them, but the inheritance that we have in our salvation, according to everything that the Scripture says, has some will-nots. It will not perish it will not get stained, it will not fade, and it will not be taken away. In no way, shape, or form. So who's watching over this inheritance? Look back at verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God. I was talking to a wife one time who was really struggling in her marriage, and this is what she said to me. I feel like I am on hold and my life is in my husband's hands. I graciously tried to encourage her that day that that wasn't true. That as a believer, ultimately, her life was not in her husband's hands. Her life was in the hands of a just and merciful and powerful and loving God. Love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's great guys. So there. Are Arrested, They're about to be executed in a fiery furnace for their faith in God. And they turn to the king, the one who has the power to release them. And this is what they say to him. Daniel chapter 3. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their life was about to be extinguished, but their hope was found in the hands of God. There was absolutely nothing in that moment that made them say, you know what, everything's not okay right now. There was nothing in that moment that caused them to say, this is all wrong. In that moment where they faced death, they said, you know what? Everything's well. It's all well because our lives are in the hands of an awesome and powerful and sovereign God. He is protecting us. We had some friends who were on the mission field for a number of years in North Africa. And there was a time where they were experiencing some physical danger in the place that they were at. And she sent out an email to everybody who was praying for them. And it had this very simple statement in it. She said, safe is being saved. Safe is being saved. Our inheritance, our salvation, it can't perish. It can't decay. It can't be stained it can't fade away why because it is in the hands of the one true awesome God of the universe and he protects to the fullest our inheritance our salvation is in the hands of God my life my inheritance is not ultimately in the hands of Obama or Hillary or Bush not in the hands of Oprah or Dr. Phil not in the hands of my family, my parents, Holland Avenue Baptist Church, or anyone else. My life, my inheritance, are in the hands of the one that spoke the world into existence. And friends, there's hope in that. Great hope in that. Our inheritance is in the hands of God. That's great information. I mean, it sounds good, right? Hey, that'll preach, right? But what will it help me do at 3 o'clock on Monday? How is my inheritance that's reserved in heaven, what is it doing for me today? How can I bring that into my daily life? Well, Peter tells us, look at the next part of verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. When you wake up in the morning, sometimes you think things like, you know what, I love coffee. Or I love hot donuts. Maybe that's just me. Or I love the newspaper and the sports page, and I love doing the crosswords. Man, I I just love all of this stuff in the world, all of this stuff in life. But See, this is what faith does. Faith moves us beyond the sports page and beyond the crosswords and beyond the coffee and the donuts. And faith pulls at our hearts so that we say, God, I want to love you more than these things. God, I want to treasure you more than all of these things. John MacArthur has something very interesting to say about the power of God and my faith and your faith. This is what he writes. The power of God is that same power that keeps us And the means he uses to keep us is by giving us a faith that does not die. And if there was a time when you believed and now you don't, if there was a time when you had interest in Christ and now you don't, if you are indifferent to the Lord at all, if you don't have a hunger and thirst for him, if you don't have a desire for his word, if you don't love him and long to serve him, if you don't want to know him, if you don't have a sustained trust and confidence in him, If you don't live your life in the hope of eternal glory, then whatever you may or may not have done in the past, you're not a Christian. God, tell us how you really feel, John. (laughs) That's strong, isn't it? A little over the top, isn't it? Feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, it does to me. (laughs) You read a quote like that and you're like, (laughs) you're a little over the top. Maybe, but not way over the top. This is what Jesus said. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, I'm pretty sure when I took my driving test, I would have failed if I spent the whole time turned around looking through the back windshield. Wouldn't have passed then. See, the picture Peter's trying to give us is this. When we remind our hearts of our inheritance when we remind our hearts of what we have in Jesus Christ and that the sovereign hands of God are protecting our inheritance that's reserved for us in heaven, that does not cause our faith to shrink. It causes our faith to grow. It causes us to have a a great sense of anticipation. But anticipation in what? Peter tells us, look at the last part of verse five. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus does not have a for rent sign that he keeps in the garage at heaven in case you don't show up. That's not how inheritance works. Our inheritance in Christ is something that means we will definitely show up. But our move-in day is later. Maybe our move-in day is, is this afternoon. Maybe our move-in day is a few months from now. Maybe your move-in day won't be for another 30 or 40 years. Maybe you won't have a move-in day because you don't know Christ. But if you're a believer, then the move-in day is coming. I am saved. I am being saved. One day I will be completely and gloriously saved. You may have heard the story of Henry Morrison Henry and his wife were missionaries in Africa for about 40 years. It seems that Henry got sick and and they were not able to live out their days on the mission field and they had to come back. On the boat that they were traveling on coming back from Africa, there was a, a famous person on board that same boat with them. President Teddy Roosevelt was making the trip back. He had been in Africa on a big hunting trip. And when the boat docked and And everybody began to get off. The president got off. And and when he got off, boy, there were cheers and flags were waving. People were all over the place. Reporters were pushing each other aside, trying to get a quote or a comment. And Henry and his wife, they walked off the boat, unnoticed by the crowds, walked on down the road, hailed a cab, and took the cab to the one-bedroom apartment that their mission board had provided. A few weeks later, this was really bothering Henry. He was really discouraged. He went to his wife, and this is what he said This man comes back from a hunting trip, and everybody throws a big party. We give our lives in faithful service to God for all these many years, but no one seems to care. His wife encouraged him to just let it go, and she encouraged him to pray. And he did. Henry went and prayed, and almost immediately he came back. And this is what he told his wife The Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was that the president received this tremendous homecoming, but no one met us as we returned home. When I finished, it seems as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, But Henry, you are not home. friends life is hard life is full of pain and life is full of evil and life is full of tragedy and life is full of discouragement and life is full of stress and life is full of sin but this life is not our home this world is not our home See, the great hope that we have as Christians is that we have this inheritance that's not here. It's there. And so, therefore, our greatest hope on this earth is that we are not home yet. We are not home yet. I hope that you are sure of that today. And if you are, then we have every reason to have great joy in this life, because of the life that is to come. Let's pray.